and welcome to In Good Company on NCS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Atega Uagba. If this is the first time you're tuning in, a quick intro. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women. And I'm also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, a modern career guide for working women that you can find on Amazon or at all good bookstores. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better aided and abetted by some of the smart, successful, creative women I know. New episodes are released monthly, and you can listen to them live on NTS or download them via iTunes. So make sure you subscribe now to automatically get each new episode straight to your phone. On this month's show, I've got cocktail expert and restaurateur Missy Flynn, one of the co-founders of Rita's Bar and Dining, formerly a restaurant here in Hackney, and now one of London's most interesting and innovative food and hospitality brands. Missy's been working in bars and restaurants for over a decade, having grown up above pubs all over London, and she's built up a reputation as the go-to girl for delicious cocktails that avoid the Sex and the City-esque cliches of modern cocktail culture. Having started out working in some of the coolest bars in London before striking out on her own to set up Rita's with a group of friends, Missy's since gone on to host a series of residencies and pop-ups all over the world, the most recent of which is Bodega Rita's, a Mexico-inspired bar taking up pride of place in the Shoreditch outpost of luxury fashion retailer Browns. She also works as a consultant for various restaurants and drinks brands. And a little birdie tells me she might just be working on a new iteration of the original Rita's restaurant. Watch this space. Also coming up, our career agony art segment, Ask a Taker. And this month, I'm sharing a few tips on how to deal with imposter syndrome. But before I jump into that, let's hear from Missy. Rita started out in 2012 okay. and I think we came out around the same time when loads of people were doing food trucks and so maybe that's why it kind of gets lost in that sort of hazy memory of that time but we started out in birthdays um, oh, that was our first thing yeah. um, and I've never I never never then and never since been interested in running a food truck just simply because it's such hard work um, I find it really admirable and I think like I think we'll probably go into this further further down the, down the line today, but hospitality industry can be quite unrewarding in a financial realm. Mm. And I just feel that people who are running food trucks, there's a lot of fast cash to be made, but I think it's also a lot of hard work for the money. So it was never something that I really wanted to do. Um, but we started out in birthdays above above so the club. What prompted you to start out at birthday? What prompted you to set that up? So funnily enough, um, the way that Rita started out at birthdays is that Dino, who was one of our original founders, who was kind of very um, instrumental in so many great night night spots here in East London, um, he is involved and was involved in birthdays. And they have one of those licenses where you have to serve food with your drinks. Um, and they were kind of circumnavigating that with a toaster oh behind the bar so they were sort it's of so like, bleak <laughs> I mean it's very Dawson it's a, it's a very interesting way of like adapting the rules to fit your purposes but they basically had a toaster behind the bar so that if somebody came in from licensing or something like I'm not sure Beans on it, toast, but yeah they had, to, they had a toaster but um but aside from the joke of that like they actually wanted to have a food offering in there but they didn't have a kitchen they had a kind of um old disabled toilet and a kind of back of house area as a space that could be converted into a kitchen so we um clubbed in with them and spent two grand making a kitchen 
out of that space mm. and, and started running Rita's from there. And how long were you in birthdays for? Rita's was in birthdays for 10 months. Okay. Yeah, we did a, like, I mean, that summer to me is, like, still one of my most kind of cherished, kind of fun, breezy, like, hot, sweaty, chaotic kind of and hard work hard working summers in my memory but it was Mm. we did um I think from like a June until um May the next year or something like that whatever 10 months is from June and was the reception good straight away yeah it was crazy I think um people were just looking for somewhere to go like we you know we started Rita's at birthdays because we spent time in this area and Mm. we knew people and it was where we hung out and what and what we thought was missing was somewhere to go later on in the evening and just eat delicious food mm. and also kind of channel all of our references from you know me being you know sentimentally Mexican but <laughs> also Gabe having lived in the States and and Dino having his own experiences of food just kind of c- combining all of our references and the things that we missed and being like there is a place that exists in our head that should ex- exist in Dalston for people like us mm. and I actually don't remember the planning of it very much. It's kind of crazy, like how quick that happened. Um, so, kind of in, chron- in, a, in a chronological order, we were like having very casual chats about, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was a great place in Dawson where you could get this kind of food, or you could get fried chicken, or you can meet your friends for like a late drink and some food as well? Because there are amazing food options here in Dawson now more than ever, and there's always been, you know, great Turkish food and other kind of. Um, other kind of late night cuisines but never anywhere that we felt married like the thing the kind of going out with your mates hanging out drinking like fast casual food and like you know just kind of boozy and like it feels quite New York in some ways like I feel like they do late night culture there just a lot better than London I'm sure that's probably got stuff to do with licensing but it always feels like for such a big city London isn't as 24 hours or as late night as it should be well no and and now we've seen the last couple of weeks that that's that's probably becoming less and less likely but you're absolutely right like I you know I used to run away to New York every summer uh, which sounds really dreamy and it wasn't because my you know my parents had a house there or something it was just Mm. because I would be like I'm getting out of here like Mm. I want to go and live this really like alluring mysterious and like fun summer kind of thing um and I would just like spend my student loan going to New York oh every summer <laughs> really, so ideal. really misguided <laughs> but we would just we would just leave like in June and just go for a couple of months and um so I kind of built a, quite a strong relationship and quite a strong kind of opinion of what late night um drinking and dining was and it really informed the way that I've worked like I when I worked um in bars, it was always because I wanted to kind of be that sassy, like New York bartender girl who like, you know, just was, you know, those people were like, you know, fun and the fun I think to hang out that, I hope so. I. Um, <laughs> and can I ask about those references? Because you've obviously told me about how they are very much inspired by what you guys were into and what you'd seen, what you'd observed. But at the time, now what Rita's was doing back then is very, very common. And I hope you take mm. that as a compliment. No, yeah, it's, absolutely. you know, become very popular and hearing about fried chicken or like frozen margaritas isn't anything <laughs> that... No, not that it's yawn, but it's just, it's just not <laughs> it novel. No, I know. Um, but at the time, you guys were really ahead of the curve. And mm. was that something that you consciously put thought into? Was that a coincidence? Were you thinking, how is this going to be received? How can we kind of cut through all the noise or like what people are doing in dining um. at the moment? I honestly don't, I really miss this time of my life when I, I honestly don't remember caring what anybody else thought. 
really, which is stupid. But I honestly just wanted to deli- to make the thing happen that I really believed in. I don't remember having to do like a competitor analysis and being mm. like, you know, you know, apart from like an observational one. But I think the noise that we kind of generated was just because, well, first of all, we we're very lucky. We always had great friends and great sort of like relationships that we could count on people to come and support us, you know, then and later on in the restaurant on Mare Street. But um, I think people just wanted something like that so they were willing to give themselves over to it and also as an experience it was fairly new you know it was at the beginning as you said of food trucks and street food and all these other kind of um transformative things happening in food in London and which again as you said like now we see the fruits of like it's such a diverse food city and yeah there's fried Mm. chicken joints everywhere there's frozen margaritas everywhere but that you know it's probably hard to believe when you think about it because it was so long ago but actually you couldn't get that kind of stuff you couldn't eat the way that we eat now Mm. six years ago we didn't have any cups that um we couldn't afford the glassware at birthday so we bought those white cups and we bought one stamp which i still have we have one little rubber stamp so i stamped all the rita's cups and i think if anyone came to rita's they'll know that we served frozen margaritas in these white cups with a stamp on it and it was really just because we couldn't afford any glasses and now it's become a thing. I go everywhere and I see like, you know, I've seen a big hotel chain like rip that off and like yeah. do like, a, you know, a quirky margarita in a white cup. And I was like, that was a t- complete accident because we couldn't afford cups. And likewise, the, the chicken in a brown paper bag. I think a lot of people thought that was like a really planned thing, but we just couldn't afford plates. I mean, I'm not from a branding background. I don't, you mm. know, I don't. I think now if people are starting food businesses, all these little kind of touch points are really important and mm. take a lot of time people spend a lot of time thinking about them but we were almost gifted them by accident and we kind of had the foresight that for the foresight for to then um adopt them for future stuff so now we have those things written into like our brand mm. identities i guess yeah. is what it's called <laughs> um but it was just kind of gifted to us in some way and what was the transition like or at what point did you decide to then look for you know a permanent bricks and mortar space like was there kind of a tipping point where you thought oh we can actually make this into sort of a proper standalone Rita's restaurant yeah like almost immediately um Gabe actually led that um because you know simultaneously to running the the space at birthdays and afterwards everyone else sort of we all had our own kind of other work to do because we weren't mm. making a lot of money from mm. that of course um but I think we were all very clear that, that this it needed to have a space like it needed to be a restaurant and I had worked in restaurants for a long time before mm. um and I think we almost felt like responsible for making sure that it st- stuck around which I still feel now I still feel that um a space like Rita's is a really important space for food and for people and we yeah we started looking quite quite early on but you know, we were very young. We were like mid twenties. We didn't, you know, we didn't have a backer. There wasn't somebody, you know, being like, "This is a good decision. This is a bad decision." Like, we had our kind of collated experiences, which, you know, which at the time were sufficient. But you know, now with with the benefit of hindsight, you know, we, we knew so little, really. So what were, what was everyone's expertise? Because you worked in restaurants and bars, so that yeah. was kind of what you were bringing to the table. In what context did you work in restaurants and bars? Um, I bartended when I was a kid at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I absolutely loved it. When you were a kid? Well, like when I was in, when I was at uni. My dad used to run pubs. So that, okay. so when I was a kid, I was always around yeah, bars. Okay. And then my first jobs were like in our 
pubs that we ran. So mm-hmm. I ran, I worked in front of house and I worked um, just like serving Sunday roasts and stuff. It was just um, really fun. And then I got a bartending job when I went to university, but mm-hmm. I stayed in London for university. So I just worked in town at a pub um, just behind Oxford, Oxford Circus. And then I sort of moved into cocktail bartending, which was just something that I kind of found accidentally and and ended up in this massive, it's a a huge scene, it's an industry in itself and it's a scene and it's got awards and you know you can you can apply for awards as best bartender which seems so trivial but it's a thing um you know and there's a whole world of products to get involved in and I I found that really exciting when I was like 18 I thought this is like a there's like I can see the progression in this industry and I really love it so in terms of the four founding members of Rita's, um, so they were myself, Gabriel, who we've spoken about, um, Jackson Boxer, who is involved in a few other restaurants now, and Dino, who runs the Alibi um, and Five Miles and Tottenham and stuff. So Dino, to begin with, just had had been working with um, Mark and Mark at the Alibi mm-hmm. for a couple of years by then, um, and was the only real, op- you know, right, only real kind of East London operator of all of us. He, mm. he had a place. People knew him for having a place. And I think what Dino was was hugely influential upon with the with the kind of bricks and mortar space is kind of bedding Rita's into the neighbourhood and making sure that we were kind of connected to the council in the right way. Um, I know that like neighbourhood watch stuff and town hall meetings about various licensing things is you know something that he's very he, he's very good at attending and and he did did that for Rita's and he kind of made sure that it was it was um yeah rooted in in the community Mm. um and also you know kind of working with the promotion side of stuff and like all the branding design kind of (laughs) packaging stuff that like I'm so bad at um (laughs) he was really good at that so Dino Dino wasn't really based in the restaurant but Mm. his kind of overall support um kind of transcended all all areas outside of that Mm. And Jackson obviously had a, had a background in kitchens, but he wasn't involved for, for very long. Um, but initially, yeah, ha- having somebody on board that was already operating a very successful restaurant in South London called Brunswick House Cafe, um, kind of, I think he sort of added a little bit of weight to the initial project. You know, when we were in birthdays, kind of having somebody who was also a restaurant operator mm. come together as kind of in this kind of motley crew of kind of. Um, kids with a mission I guess yeah. um, was quite was quite helpful at that point and what was the process like um of I guess looking for the space because I'm sure location is really important and you know getting it I guess set up and like the fit out like all the kind of more logistical side of opening a restaurant like what 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 did that involve and how did you go about doing that and how you know how did you fund it how long did it take all of that stuff yeah okay so like I said Gabe did a lot of the work finding the location I feel Mm. bad because he kind of he gets kind of written off as the chef but he he did a lot of the design as well um and we always joke that Gabe invented millennial pink (laughs) oh my god yeah because you guys that was a thing you guys were doing it way 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 (laughs) before I ripped off my book cover (laughs) um no, so he, so we, I mean, we were all had our eyes open constantly for spaces because we all had this, you know, the same dream. I think you just want to find like a hole in the wall and turn it into your, your, your dream space. And I think I'm so wedded to the idea of spaces. Like even now we haven't got a restaurant. I, you know, I'm always looking at like what space is available? What's the rent? Just making like casual inquiries, which is mm. kind of uh, very insightful to, as to the property market now. Mm. But um, yeah, we looked everywhere. We had, we took some agents on. Um, you know, we have, we had a bit of money from Gabe's family, 
Um, I think when people see that there's a family member involved, it, you know, they kind of get wildly kind of um, wildly kind of overestimate how much money there is available, and they want to yeah. send you properties that are like insanely out of oh, budget. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I think yeah. there's just kind of quite it's a modest I, amount. I, yeah, guys, I, I, yeah, saw, yeah. I saw. I I felt a little bit of kind of a a leech leech vibe with a few imagine. of the agents but then on the flip side we have some agents working on our behalf sending us really great spaces um and but none of them are quite right you know they're kind of working with us to find something that fit the kind of size and, and location that we were looking for can i just ask because i don't understand this and i imagine a lot of other people don't but mm. do the agents work on a com- like how do they get paid they work pay on them a commission no okay we work on a commission okay yeah, so the agents will generally go out. They'll have a lot of properties on their file, mm. and they will try and match them to you. But that you know, the restaurant industry is um, so insane at the moment that agents are working. I, you know, there's a lot of people closing and trying to reappropriate their spaces or re- reassign their leases, which is just like such a minefield. I think, and also, you know, I I didn't know anything about property. I, you know, I wasn't um, very well versed in all the property jargon and also all the kind of hidden fees and stuff. So eventually we decided not to use an agent and Gabe had seen a space on Mare Street um quite an unusual space and it was called Exoline Exotic Dishes do you remember seeing that I don't remember that um and it was like a Caribbean takeaway and catering company and they were closing down they were retiring so we went about dealing directly with the with the landlord there with the help of an age um a solicitor just Mm. to assign the lease and stuff like that um, and took that on in the August of 2013, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, so we kind of closed. So that was quite a quick timeline, actually. We closed the pop-up May mm-hmm. in Dalston, and then by August we had a had a lease on a space. And then when did, when did it open? Um, November okay. 16th. So that was about three or four months of like yeah putting the space together yeah very hard work lots of ikea i can imagine <laughs> lots of ikea and lots of white paint um yeah we didn't spend a lot on the fit out but it, it looked really i think but i think again that's kind of what you were saying earlier like you were working on a budget this wasn't something with some you know big hospitality group with a wealthy backer who can mm. afford to sink in you know hundreds of thousands into a space or millions or whatever yeah so i but i think the fact that you managed to make it look it looked slick. It looked legit. When it, yeah, exactly. It looked, <laughs> looked legit when it opened and, you know, throughout. So I yeah. think that's just, I don't know, I think it's just quite useful for people to know that they don't have to... You don't, know. You know, they can kind of, you can kind of cobble things together and maybe you have some savings, whatever is possible, or at least then maybe Definitely. it's possible to do it on your own. Oh, you know, we did, we did a lot. We used a really nice, really good builder um, mm. who had done some work for um, Gabe's parents before, so who's a very good family friend. Um, and he was very tuned into what we had and what we didn't have mm. financially and made it work for us and I mm. think that's the I mean I you know I see people getting ripped off by builders all the time and because it's something that you don't know you're not a build if you're not a builder yourself you don't feel qualified to be like that's not right that's not, you know that doesn't look quite right that's taking longer than I would imagine it to take but actually when you're paying somebody to do something you're well within your rights to ask questions yeah um and i see a lot of people not doing that and i'm like you just you need to go in there and you know ask them what they're doing you know it's your money at the end of the day and like they need to be working for you i might add we used a a consultant to help us set up a guy 
and I had the worst time working with him. What, what did he, what did he advise? Well. No, I didn't know about this. What did he advise you on? Um, we brought somebody in who had ample restaurant experience from a big, bigger group on a very short term contract to help us kind of negotiate deals with suppliers and actually do the setup stuff. Because as you said, you know, there's so much to do. And, and you know, admittedly, I, I don't want to pretend that we, you know, we, we didn't know. No, but that's, that you know, actually we, seems we, like a really smart it was option. a smart option, you know, just somebody to come in and make sure that we know how to run our cash up sheets and how to run our GPs, which is your gross profit margin and mm. how to cost our dishes and how to cost our drinks and stuff. Yeah. Um, the only problem is that guy turned out to be like the worst guy in the world and really tricked us into getting, uh, again, I think he was kind of um, saw money where there wasn't money and walked us into some really, really bad financial agreements with various suppliers um god which really yeah it was really bad so um so yeah that you know we we didn't we didn't set up in the best way you know Mm. we we made it work but you know in hindsight again which is which is probably going to be this conversation is gonna be a lot of hindsight i think um we, we overspent in some areas where we probably could have just spent more on the design and making it you know a bit prettier but it it's was, what you it don't worked. know. Yeah. That's the thing. And also, I feel like you did the smartest possible thing, which is realizing that you didn't know things. So getting someone yeah. who did supposedly know those things. Like, yeah. I think that makes sense. I still think that was the right call. It's just unfortunate yeah. that you happened to get someone who was clearly oh, yeah, and a I cowboy. Mean, some of the things that he gave us were, were invaluable, you know, yeah. in terms of back of house operational kind of paperwork, because mm. there's just so much to mm. do. Um, and then at sort of launch, when you opened the kind of proper space, what was the reception for that like? And what was your like? What was your PR strategy? Did you have one? Did you rely on the kind of old crowd kind of sticking around for this new space? How did mm. that work? So with Rita's in terms of PR and marketing, we've never outsourced any of that. We've never employed a PR, which is fun. <laughs> I think I I think I knew that, but I'm always still surprised because you've definitely told me that before. But I'm mm. always still surprised because of how much press it got me and too. how well it did so it's <laughs> really like surprised whoa I'm honestly still surprised that people still ask us anything about Rita's at all because you know I it, I just wish I could t- sometimes you get disillusioned don't you like with also with time I don't know I feel like oh maybe it's not relevant and even with this restaurant I was like maybe it's not relevant we had our boom in Dalston it was great there were cool people queuing around the block we had Harry Styles' 18th birthday like it's did all, you we did, <laughs> did not know that yeah he had his birthday at Rita's he loves patty melts apparently <laughs> I don't know if he loves them anymore but he's grown up That's brilliant. but Harry had his 18th at Rita's that but, is very cool yeah it was very it was cool the spot. yeah I mean it was cool and, and there were like lots of young girls outside like where's Harry um <laughs> yeah it was weird but then we opened the space and I was like well maybe we've had that moment like you know that was such an that was so fiery like that was such an energetic moment of time for Mm. us maybe this restaurant you know won't have that um but of course we had some confidence that it would otherwise we would have done Mm. it um but actually in terms of press we didn't we um we were we were reviewed pretty much by every big reviewer Mm. Giles Corrin came Jay Rayner came to Dalston reviewed us for the Guardian Grace Dent reviewed us Faye Mashler reviewed us twice um Marina Lachlan came like all you know all the kind yeah. of you know I couldn't I mean I would have paid a PR person like 10 grand to yeah get, exactly to get, to get that and you just did that and I couldn't I honestly couldn't tell you exactly why they came but I think that it has something to do with the fact that we were we were young going out on a limb and again I think it's testament to how unique that proposition was at that time you know now we have it's I mean it's great there are lots of people doing amazing things in food but 
we were kind of on an island at that time. Mm. Um, and to get reviewed by those people, I mean, it was like terrifying. With the reviews that we received, I... I think, well, the good ones, <laughs> the good ones, definitely. There were no bad reviews. There was we don't maybe talk about one those. iffy one. Um, uh, yeah, you do see. I mean, I honestly, I haven't run a restaurant for so long. I don't know what the immediate uptake is now because I think people are so spoiled for choice. They really influence the kind of people that come in as mm. well. So you definitely get you know people who read The Guardian, for example, versus different people who read The Evening Stand. You get different crowds coming off the back of different reviews, which mm. I think adds to the diversity of a place. Mm. Um, and in terms of a financial return, I think you definitely, you, in, a, in a restaurant world, you do need you know, a couple of big names to be like, yeah, it's it's the one, it's good. Because also those sorts of things are, I guess, quite evergreen in a way because then they go and they sit online and that kind of shapes when people Google you, that kind of shapes. Yeah, if you Google, if you Google Rita's, you get a really bad review of me. No way. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? What is this like TripAdvisor yeah. or something? Yeah, it's great. But what were the biggest challenges of running a restaurant day to day? So the biggest challenges of the restaurant, I mean, I absolutely thrived, I, th I, you know, on the work, the physical work, at least for the first year, I absolutely loved getting there in the morning, putting the music on, having keys to a restaurant. It's like, it was honestly like a dream come true. Mm. Um, but then one year in kind of when you first, when you're kind of first accounts are due and you kind of start assessing your first year's trading and that that's a very real, quite scary time. And that, that was kind of when I started to really, um, feel nervous about being a business owner mm. prior to that there have been kind of smaller hurdles I mean there's just so much paperwork involved and um, margins are so small in food anyway you know kind of being responsible for making sure that you're on the right side of your margins is mm. quite hard and also HR you know I'd never been anybody's direct boss before mm. I've never I'd never like run a restaurant before never been a manager before anywhere so it's just like suddenly you know hiring hiring and firing and the hiring I really enjoyed because I've you know I've got this kind of natural um instinct and ability I think to kind of nurture people's talent and to train them and to kind of bring them out of their shells and engage them in something so I really really enjoyed building a team but on the flip side of that you know, is that sometimes it doesn't work and I, I really struggled with the people element of that. I really struggled with the idea of telling somebody that they had to leave and not come back to work tomorrow, you know, because they weren't doing a good job. I struggled with kind of fighting um, our corner, like as a business against other people, you know, sort of being like, you're not doing what we need you to do. You're costing us money. You have to go. Otherwise, it's kind of a you or us situation. Mm. And I found that really hard, you know, just the idea of being um, responsible for our, our safety kind of I learned a lot by being kind of thrown in at, as a, at a manager, management level yeah most of it was to people related I think about communication and kind of just um being available you know I think I'm quite an available person anyway in terms of kind of I mean approachable is probably better like you know at work I think mm. people know they could knew from, from the beginning they could talk to me if they had a problem if they mm. didn't understand anything I'd, I'd learned from amazing mentors which I think is a key thing I think you, you can't be a good manager until you've had a good manager and a yeah. bad manager I yeah. think you have to know yeah, what yeah. manager you're not going to be um, so true. <laughs> and what manager you want to be and I really had such a clear idea of what kind of manager I needed to be um 
I'm, yeah, so I think the main thing I learned, like the first person I kind of had to let go, they cried and then I cried. And I was like, why am I crying? I've just, you know, I should feel empowered. This should be amazing. And actually it was empowering the next day and onwards. But in the moment I was like, this is a, this is a hurdle for me. This is kind of a pivotal moment where I am, I'm being, I'm acting for, from, for my business. Mm. And so that was the main thing. And then, um, I think just the kind of time management, I think people, I think a lot of people struggle with this is that when you're managing a team, ours was probably about 15 people max at any, any given time, you often come very last, you know, yourself. And I think that's, I mean, a lot of people talk about this, but I forgot to manage myself in some way. I forgot to make sure you know, I knew everyone was, everyone else was fine. I knew who, who broke up with their boyfriend, who needed, who was moving house, who needed extra time, who needed to get a pay advance, you know, all the while I'm paying myself last and I'm not really checking in with how I'm feeling. I may be drinking more than I should. Um, no one's really asking me how my day went at the end, you know, like, am I looking out for myself at the same time? Mm. Um, and I was lucky cause I was in business with three guys and I actually like really supportive guys but I really alienated myself from my friends and I kind of I kind of didn't have any barometer as to my own sort of like stability there was no there weren't many people who were like um like are you all right have you had a day off recently so I think my my kind of self-management was quite bad was that something you realized at the time or was that in hindsight that you're oh very much in hindsight yeah very much in hindsight and I didn't delegate early enough Mm. I don't think and I had some really capable people with me who could have easy, easily have done any of those small tasks with a little bit of direction? I think I was so, you know, um, it's it's but it's incredibly difficult way. to delegate when it's something that is your own idea, and also when you probably have a very clear vision of how you want things to be executed. Yeah, and I guess part of the sort of you know with delegating, you kind of have to accept. You know, ideally, someone's going to do it the same way or to the same standards, but they're not inside your head, so you kind of have to let yeah. go of the fact that it's not going to be executed exactly that's the way so you true. want it to. But it's a trade-off between it being done at all. Yeah, completely. But that's just I. Yeah, I struggle with do that. Const- yeah, massively, massively. Even though I know, like on a um, on a sort of rational level, that an inability to delegate is holding me back. And recently, I've started doing some stuff with women who that is essentially delegating like hiring people but um it's yeah it's it's incredibly difficult and there is still it's kind of getting over that kind of slight dissatisfaction and kind of seeing like the bigger picture yeah and also realizing that if someone is doing you know there's a difference in someone doing something worse than you would but if they're just doing it differently then you have to make your peace with that like if it's like okay this isn't up to scratch that's one thing but someone doing something differently to how you would ideally do it yourself does not make it bad or wrong. Yeah. It just means it's different because they are not you. Yeah. And I think that is something that I think is quite hard to um, sort of reckon with when you hand over I, things. Yeah, I found that especially hard because obviously restaurant work is so physical and it's so interactive. So for me to kind of say, I want this space run and I want it to feel this way. You know, the things that I found really hard to train is like, what level the light should be because it's intuitive to me I'm like you know this is the this is the lighting outside in my brain and my eyes the lighting in here needs to be this you just can't you know unless you have one of those lights that's got numbers on it and it's like but then but then then places have no ambience because they're not you know you get you know you know yeah you know the places that have settings for how loud the music is and how loud how high the lights are Mm. but I couldn't train anybody to just like walk past the light switch on at like Nine nine twenty five on a Friday and just slightly turn the lights. Like I can't train anybody to do that. That like, responsiveness. Just, yeah, yeah. So that kind of <laughs> that those elements I really struggled with because I 
and I think that's why um physically I was I was there so much I could mm. I really couldn't bear to walk in you know on a night off and, and not have every then why is the music not you know, off god forbid the music's off and no one's noticed and it does happen and it's not because people are oblivious I think it's partly to do with the fact that I was I was always there to make sure that it was all on and all correct and also they're doing their other jobs you know they're waiting tables and stuff the things that are probably more key to the day-to-day functioning but it doesn't mean those other little touches are yeah and fundamentally you're not the owner so you know through no fault of their own if you come to work to cook food you're not also then going to come to work necessarily i mean it it would be nice but to tune into like how clean the toilets are and how 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 bright the room is and is the is the music loud enough and it's about their level of investment into it and i think yeah like you say that's completely natural but to be fair i think we had an amazing team there i kind of i'm exaggerating that a little bit we did have probably the best front of house i've seen in a long time i always had great service when i was there um and then moving along in the history of rita's um so how long was it open for and on the Mare Street sort of branch? Just over three years. Okay. We, we were on Mare Street for just over three years. And you closed it in 2016? Yeah, it's almost two years now. And why? For Yeah, I, I know the story, but yeah. I'm, why did you decide to close it down? Um, we So we had been struggling financially, um, not because people didn't love the restaurant, just because I think there was so much more choice. We were never consistently busy, so it would be like slammed on a Tuesday, dead on a Thursday in the same week. So we just couldn't manage our staff rotation. Um, costing wise, that's very difficult to navigate. You know, you're kind of like run, you know, prep wise, food wise. I mean, people forget or either, or just don't know that the restaurant kind of, like I said, the margins are so small because there are so many variables and so many things that need to kind of come together to make a, a profitable business mm. um, and for us we were kind of on this erratic pattern anyway so it wasn't that we weren't busy ever it was just that we weren't consistently trading mm. um, so we did a few things we kind of shut down uh, the front of the restaurant to try and make a smaller bar area that would work for midweek so mm. that we weren't opening up the whole space and thus having to staff it mm. um, we did a little bit of renovation and we took on a partner who turned out to not have the same visions as we did for that space. Um, so it was kind of a bit of a heartbreaking When you decision. say took on a partner, you mean financially? Financially, yeah. Okay. Um, to facilitate those changes. Mm. I mean, this we were like, this space is not working for us as it is. We've kind of made a mistake with where we put the bar. Mm. And now, so far on, I can, I'm very happy to like say that we made a mistake because mm. we did. Mm. Um, and the bar needed to be at the front of the restaurant so it could be more fast casual and we could kind of... Mm bring down our costs so we again we we knew what needed to be done we did we did the thing that needed to be done and the result was just a kind of shadow of what it should have been mm. after that and and I couldn't really see us moving forward with the, at the same level of quality or happiness with this new partner and with the kind of revised ethos of this new partner um basically we were facing a decision between putting the prices up and cutting down on the quality and perhaps cutting our staff numbers in order to stay open. And I just couldn't see that happening. I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't recognize that restaurant, yeah. you know, in my head. And then one day I did walk in and I was like, it just feels this, it's gone too far mm. and it doesn't feel like Rita's anymore. And I think as a kind of timing thing, it, it was a really good, it was a really necessary thing to kind of draw a line under the business as it was and, and everyone separate and do their own thing. But the thing is, I think that is so... I mean, that must have been an incredibly difficult decision yeah. 
to make. Um, but I think, and I'm sure you can see, and it sounds like that was the logic informing at the time, but it makes so much sense not to dilute. The, like if, if, if people's last memory of Rita's was, oh, it was so great when it started out and then it kind of went a bit so oh, sad. I, Do you remember when the food got a bit shit? And then I the don't think anyone would ever say that, which is great. Well, no, exactly. Nice. Yeah. But that's, that's because you kind of went out on a high. And now also you were saying, you know, you can't believe people still ask you about Rita's, but it's because the brand is still there and still really, really strong and people still love it. But if you had kind of made these compromises, that wouldn't have happened. And maybe you'd have had to close Absolutely. anyway a year down yeah. the line, but you'd have kind of ruined totally. what you built. Yeah, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to have to close because no one cared anymore and it was, and we were doing bad food. Not, I mean, the food would never be bad. Yeah. It was just that I, I take that back. We would never do bad food. Um, it would, it would have been a case of compromising on the suppliers that we use. So we're using probably lesser quality ingredients and the prices just would have had to go up. And also the rents were going up and, yeah. and the rates. So it was like, an impending sort of like reshuffle of this of the business and I just couldn't stand for you know 11 pounds for a margarita which is like mm. very normal now but I just that's not the thing that we set out to do yeah so it, I think that also we couldn't shift into that next kind of realm within a space that we've been in for three years it didn't feel right to do that to everybody who'd been loyal to that space to be like mm. thanks for your support for three years by the way now everything is three pounds more expensive yeah um and, and you people gonna... notice that stuff massively yeah it's cheeky i mean it's 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 necessary for a lot of businesses but i find it very cheeky and i think the dia i think the, the dialogue needs to be there i think if your business is changing or you need more from your guests you know, they also need more from you. They need to know. They need to, you know, there needs to be an open conversation about it. You wrote something really interesting for the debrief and I was, RIP the debrief, and I was rereading yeah, it this so morning. Um, but you wrote this really, really amazing um, article and I'm going to include it in the show notes and everyone should go out and read it. But it was about how closing Rita's um, changed your definitions of success and failure. And can you just kind of elaborate a little bit on that for me because just yeah. rereading it again this morning I read it at the time I read it again this morning and it was just so like it just really touched me and made me think god I really need to remember this constantly but yeah can you just tell me a bit about oh, it thank you I have to say thank you to Vicky as well for asking me to write that because it was so cathartic you know and I'm not a, I'm not a writer and I've never written anything before but um closely really? oh my god your articles <laughs> are so much better than some of the shit I see good, on the internet good editing from so, Vicky Vicky's um, yeah um no it was a really well you know I think it was good because it was it was going it had been going around in my head for so long it was almost like it, it kind of wrote itself mm. um and so I the article that I wrote for the debrief was about um rethinking ideas of success and failure um, and t told very much along the kind of alongside the story of Rita's and my own experience of of a perceived failure, you know, mm -hmm. having closed the restaurant. And you know, I think when I was thinking when I was on my way here, I was like, Sh I hope I'm not like, I don't know. I mean, I definitely can't sit here and tell anybody or, or share and I share a story of like how I got rich or how I made it because you know I just haven't. Um, <laughs> but I do feel successful, and I think that was what that point that article was about. It's the idea of. Um, actually having successes in your own mind in your own sort of within your own goals can be as valuable if not more as success on paper or in paper you know with money um and my my own goalposts for success um changed a lot in the rest you know in the in that lifespan of that restaurant, the three years that we were on Mare Street, you know, to go from being like reviewed and in every paper 
immense sense of pride you're riding the train and somebody's reading a review of your restaurant and I'm like oh my god I'm 25 like what is this is amazing it was such a strange feeling you mm. know and people being like oh my god you guys are killing it you're doing so well going out for a drink after work everyone's like you're smashing it and you know and the reality of it being that you know you're in one of the hardest industries that there is to make money in um and everything you do in restaurants is is on credit you know it's all on supply supplier orders or you've got staff who are waiting to get paid there's always somebody waiting to get paid you're never mm. at a point where you're like huh, oh, great you know <laughs> Because that's how you do it. That's the only yeah. way that it works. It only works if you make use of your accounts and you're juggling, you're paying people, you know, who need to be paid as opposed to people who want to get paid. And, you know, you maybe don't pay yourself. There's always some sort of discrepancy. And, and I found mm. that very, very stressful. And I found it very hard to not talk about that. And also no one really asked, you know, because it's just so... They assume. It's so, you know, to, their, to every, you know, it's, you've, got, you've got a set of keys in your pocket and they open a restaurant. Oh, my mm. God, what's in the restaurant? Loads of wine, loads of booze, loads of food. Like, you must be doing You must so, own it all. Yeah, yeah you must you be doing must, so yeah, well. totally. It's like, you know, it's, it, all, it all needs to be sold. It all needs to be paid for. And, um, you know, and I, so I, you know, rode that feeling of success, being successful for the first year or so because... Because it came to me, the you know, I'd get free drinks in restaurants and people would come and say, how are you doing? It's very clear. You're a part of a scene and everyone's very cliquey and everyone thinks you're doing very well. So they want to be friends with you. And then when we kind of became um, like older news, you kind of be like, OK, well, where are our, where does my success lie now? Well, my success lies in the community and the people that come here. And I have these families that come here you know, twice a week and I have people who come here regularly to get takeout. And we have now we have kind of local success and very sort of like personal success which was very, which is actually way more satisfying I can imagine um and then kind of further down the line when we're closed just sort of like well I don't have any of those things now because my success um you know was was with the with people and with interaction with other people I don't I don't have keys to anything now I don't have a physical space and I don't have lots of money so how can I feel successful mm. um and invariably the only feeling that you can feel is of failure um and I don't know. I, I I I tried to do everything I could to not feel that. You know, when we closed, we did a massive party. It was very emotional. Everyone got on the bar and like cried and got loads of pictures. And we did a guest book. And it's just, you know, I'm going to look back at that when I'm way older and mm. be like, oh my god, remember this time I had a restaurant? It was amazing. That mm. day was incredible. Um, but it, you know, I felt like even though we did all those things, it wasn't enough. It just feels like, okay, we've, we've walked away from something and we just couldn't do it. But um, in the subsequent sort of year, now two years, which is what I was touching on in the article, I've kind of, I feel able to kind of compartmentalize that experience as part of my overall success story, I guess. Definitely. You know, the money, the money bit might be the next bit or it might be like two bits down the line, but I think you just look at it as a timeline and I think the success lies in doing my own thing and being out on my own you know I feel I remember so happy for that. the first time we met was fairly soon after I think Rita's had closed yeah you asked me to do a talk yeah Thank yeah you. yeah um and it was and you were so honest about it which I really just still admire but it was obviously still very raw and I think you feeling like a failure at that time was definitely Could something you, did you feel it like do you, do you think I, I think feel you said like it I think I think you no, and but I have just found that so baffling because that wasn't how I saw it at all. And obviously, not being personally invested mm. in it, I'm I'm never going to feel that way. And I get it. But I very much like I'm glad, not in a patronizing way, that you can kind of see it as just like another step 
in your journey because that is always how I've perceived it. And it's always, in a way, I'm almost like that is kind of more, it's more experience. Yeah. It's more, I think it's the phrase like grist your milk, but it's Mm. just, I think it's additive as opposed to taking away, even the fact that you were able to and decided to call it when you did, I think takes a level of maturity and experience. Like I have never perceived it that way and I don't think anyone does, but I can obviously completely understand how personal it felt and how this thing that you had is no longer there it's funny because i it's just it's, it's a women punish themselves don't they because mm. you all the success stories of men in restaurants and i'm sure otherwise you always hear he did this first then he did this then he made his money in the city then he kept, then he closed his restaurant in ibiza then he came back to you know and it's like that's not a failure that guy's that guy's killing it. He's had this, this, and I think we just punish ourselves Completely so much. So true. Like I, I think it's actually quite rare, and it is kind of part of you know we have this like cultural obsession of these like you know whirlwind success stories, especially young people, which you know it's neither here nor there. But I don't think we focus enough on the fact that things are iterative and it takes a couple of goes to get things right and most you know learning to ride a bike I must have fallen off 10 times before I learned how to do it but we don't we don't allow ourselves that leeway when it comes to things that are bigger and it's just part of the story but then yeah you know who knows someone's going to be writing your autobiography in 30 years time and they'll just this is just kind of like another it's just a chapter isn't yeah, it? yeah it's just a chapter I think I don't know I feel like the one thing that got to me I think probably and I judged myself harder than I would have was just because I was 30 which is really stupid but I think that I found I was very shocked and surprised that having enjoyed quite a kind of successful food and drink career from quite early on mm. to then for then for the lowest time to be also the time when I should you know when it would be really nice to be it's very nice really to be successful in the, your 30s yeah. I mean early 30s is the is the, the best time to kind of just be about to make it you know or making yeah. it it's it's the time when you want money you want to start looking at house, whatever how and I kind of spoke about this in the article but I, that's never really been me I've never been chasing those things mm. and the context that was then thrust upon me this kind of like Oh, your restaurant closed. Oh, but and you're 30 and you're not buying a house and you're not having a kid. And you you know, it's like, well, I'm fine with the restaurant closing, actually, because mm. that's just a chapter. But in the sphere, in the time in which it's happening is couldn't have, like couldn't it have happened. Like, couldn't have been worse. Time, yeah. You yeah. Know, like and, and I think that's and also that's quite scary putting put all my 20, you know, my 20s into having a, I, I always wanted a restaurant. Mm. I must, I'm subconsciously I must have been working towards that that's why I quit my job that's why I went into Rita's that's why we went for the next space mm. and to have all of that just kind of just be like without all of it and then turn 30 and be like okay well that was a crazy decade but also actually probably quite a good sort of round yeah round experience and be like okay now my 30s are about learning from that time and doing things better and with you know more thoroughly and making a bit more money and having learned from it and and having having learned from yeah one of the things that I want to talk to you about um just to kind of wrap up is about Rita's the brand and where you see that going next because I I was kind of when I was writing the intro for this I didn't know how to refer to it I think I ended up calling it like a hospitality group or like a food brand yeah I don't know what to call it nor do I um I need some branding advice. Actually. Okay, <laughs> no, I mean well, I'm a brand consultant. Yeah, no. so <laughs> really, cook me some funny. F- that. Cook me some food, and I will no, be all I yours. Mean, you know what? I think that as a um, Gabe actually hates when I call Rita's a, a brand. 
he doesn't hate it. He's like, it's not a brand. I think he, because I think the connotations again of that are a lot of impersonal or it's not for the for people or it's not, or it's calculated. I think mm. that's the thing that's calculated. Yeah. And brands are, cal- I mean, you have to think about your brand. Um, and I would like to see the Rita's, I mean, it's kind of carried itself for the last two years, which is really nice. Mm. We don't put a huge amount of energy chasing kind of Rita's, a Rita's revival or anything, but it has, it's kind of been simmering really nicely. And now I feel really rewarded for that patience. You know, I kind of feel like to have rolled anything out outside before kind of this nice kind of healing time would have been premature. And also it would have been um, lacking in some sort of um, dynamic, dynamic goal I think because I think we would have always been looking back regressive and kind mm. of like trying to cl- trying to capture what was lost mm. and now we kind of feel I feel I think Gabe feels that now and there's just the two of us involved in Rita's now so I think we have this kind of quite clean combined sort of vision to move forward and it feels really dynamic and we're doing kind of some stuff with a work with a tech company and looking at a couple of spaces and now working with an offshoot brand Bodega Rita's which is kind of like a small retail element um which is something which is kind of just another way to fulfill my own interest because the one thing that's been great about not having the restaurant is that you can I personally have been able to kind of like look at the rest of the world and like just you know go see more galleries and mm. take more pictures and kind of get involved in, in other creative work so that time has been really fun and we've kind of been able to do more projects that I think have shown people that Gabe and I outside of a space are able to maintain a brand and do various dinners and partnerships and create products that we're selling in the bodega, which is in Browns um, on Redchurch Street, which is great. Nice partner for us. Yeah, um, amazing. Yeah, really good like fashion partner. <laughs> um, uh, and as a brand, I think we want to continue to kind of make those partnerships kind of work for us in a way that we can explore other things. Mm. Um, but yeah, we're definitely looking at a couple of spaces, uh, one in King's Cross. So I'm... I'm hoping to be able to announce that very soon and I'd love to do more like I'd love to be asked to do more partnerships and more kind of creative work with food and also other women who work in restaurants there are so many women in wine Mm. and in front of house who are just really into design and and curating dinners and events and other stuff and, and and kind of products and everything else and I think you know the sad thing is sometimes when you go into hospitality you end up working so many hours with a quite kind of specific group of people that you you often lose touch with your creative self I think in some Mm. ways and I remember this when I was younger you just kind of work hang out you have banter with people at work you have a couple of drinks you go home you come back the next day and it really takes some energy to maintain contact with the rest of the world or your own interests that the music that you really like instead of the playlist that's on every day like mm. it, it does take effort you know I'm sure that's true of every other job but you know probably less so if you're able to sit in an open room with people who are in the same kind of field as you and mm. kind of interested in the same stuff you know you're there and also your energy is so subserve you're kind of there to serve other people so you kind of forget to allow yourself time to have ideas and think about things um and I think there are a lot of women in restaurants who could really do with that space or being involved in other stuff because mm. they're, they're holding on to so much energy that is really valuable. I need an outlet for that. Yeah. I feel like you are clearly, you have that energy and you're like spreading it far and wide. So I think that is um, good people out there a really to good work thing. 
Um, that is a lovely note to end on. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for this having me and lovely. for your <laughs> continued support. Always. Aww. On today's segment of Ask Ortega, I've got a letter from someone who's dealing with a serious case of imposter syndrome. Here it is. Hi, Ortega. First of all, let me just say thank you. My good friend bought me your book for my birthday and I read it religiously from cover to cover. At the time, I was working a crappy retail job for a lacklustre company and with an impossible manager. But thanks to your advice, I took the plunge, quit my job, moved back in with my parents temporarily and was able to focus on my career. Now I have one, but that's the problem. I work for a fashion company as a junior graphic designer. I really love it and all my colleagues are really friendly. My boss is a little hard to read, but she is fair and she's always teaching me new things. And yet I'm suffering from a serious case of imposter syndrome. I know I'm new, but every time I make any mistake, I'm terrified I won't make it past my probation, and the gaps in my knowledge of certain things make me feel like a failure. Everyone says that I'm new, and they would expect me to be learning and growing within the company. Plus, probations are only really failed for gross misconduct. But what with the pressures of saving for a mortgage, coupled with the fear of losing this job that took me so long to acquire, I'm becoming really miserable. I'm sure the best advice is to get a grip, but you've helped me out so much already, I'd be forever grateful if you could help me out some more. Yours sincerely, an imposter in hiding. First of all, can I just say, you know, congrats on getting a job that you enjoy. I really appreciate the shout out that you've given to the book and to me, but let's be honest, that's something you've done all by yourself. So you should be really, really pleased. Um, Getting a permanent job that you actually like with colleagues that you get on with in this economy is no mean feat. There would have been a lot of competition for that job. So the fact that you got it is really a testament to your skill and to your experience. So just kind of bear that in mind. Um, Next up, a little dose of reality. Starting a new job is actually kind of crap. I don't think anyone really talks about it. Um, But I think it's really normal to expect that, you know, the initial excitement, securing that job, you know, planning your first day outfit, getting some fresh business cards. You kind of think that all of that's going to last forever. But the truth is the experience of starting a new job is actually a really exhausting situation. You're constantly learning new information. You're having to learn new names and faces. You're working with lots of different people, figuring out how they work best, what they like, what they don't like, new systems, office politics. And on top of all of that, your livelihood and your ability to pay the rent or pay your mortgage depends on it. And that actually continues to be the case for several months. So I don't think you should expect that after the first few weeks of a new job, you should have it all figured out, which I think is a pressure that a lot of people put on themselves. But it's actually just not realistic. Um, I've personally never started a new job and not felt intensely like an imposter for those first few months. So I think it's completely natural. And it might not feel like it, but the very fact that you're actually experiencing imposter syndrome probably means that you're actually pretty good at what you do. Um, I've always found that incompetent people and the people that I've worked with who are kind of crap very rarely the ones who worry about being imposters. Um, It's something that actually tends to affect people who are pretty good at what they do and actually give a damn. You know, having the self-awareness to evaluate your own performance and to think about how you're doing usually means that you're doing something right. So relax. Um, Also, don't forget that you're actually still really junior. So the chances are that you actually are surrounded by people who are more capable and more experienced and more knowledgeable than you. So it's pretty natural to be feeling out of your depth. And you don't have to think of that as a negative thing, like being pushed out of your comfort zone is the best way to get better at what you do. So kind of try and lean into that feeling as best you can and, you know, maybe even try and embrace it. 
I think it's also really important that you set yourself realistic standards um, and try to remember that nobody expects you to be perfect or to be an expert on every single topic and saying, I need to figure this out or I'm still working on a solution for that. If you don't immediately have an answer to someone's question or you don't know how to do something, it's perfectly okay. And something that if you actually look around, you notice that even really experienced people do that. Um, and the same goes for asking questions when things are a bit unclear. So I think knowing that you have those backups in your pocket can really alleviate some of the pressure that's stopping you from thinking rationally. And the good thing is it sounds like your colleagues are actually very much in that mindset anyway. So try to take their assurances at face value because I don't think they'd be saying that if it weren't actually the case. I think a really important thing to think about is how you're communicating with your boss. That's definitely a question that I have. You know, are you having regular check-ins? It sounds, like I said, like your colleagues are being supportive of you, which is really great, but it's really important that you're also getting feedback on your day-to-day -day work from your direct manager and the person who's actually your boss. So in these early, you know, weeks or months, you might want to consider suggesting, you know, the occasional informal coffee to kind of run things by him or her whilst you're still finding your feet. And it's perfectly okay to kind of signpost that you want to use that time to get feedback on your performance and to ask questions. And that's something that will actually really reflect very well on you because it's a really proactive step to take. Um, you said your boss is a little bit hard to read, which I think in so many cases is how imposter syndrome and doubts really start to take hold when you have no way of measuring how you're doing. So I think as much as possible, try and remove that element of doubt from the equation by introducing some sort of informal check-in system. And again, you know, it could be a coffee every now and then, you know, just kind of popping to the shops to go and get lunch together. But I think there's no point in suffering in silence and just kind of ruminating all these doubts and questions when, you know, there's someone there who can tell you exactly how you're doing. Um, otherwise, I would say just try not to put too much pressure on yourself when you've just started a new job and actually, you know, try to enjoy this phase of your career. Um, when you don't have as much responsibility as you will later have. Um, and yeah, let me know how you get on. Good luck. If you've got a career question you'd like my advice on during next month's Ask a Taker segment, just email podcast at womenwho.co and let me know what's on your mind. And that's it for this month. Thank you for tuning in. For more career inspiration and information, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website, www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup. You can find me at Otega Uagba on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, please don't forget to subscribe. And as always, leave us a really lovely five-star review whilst you're there. See you next time.